research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. Subject today is a little bit different, but is it really that different? We're going to talk about the mass murder, the terrorism that's occurred in Israel, and we're going to kind of unpack what's going on in the U.S. government. Now, Eric, Joe Biden said unequivocally, we stand with Israel. But the question we're going to answer today is, do we really stand with Israel in terms of our government policy and some of the people that are making policy decisions? No, it's a great question. I think it's actually a very important topic. On one hand, we absolutely, the United States does support and stand with Israel. We fund Israel to the tune of anywhere from $3.3 billion per year. Uh, the fact that Israel has been able to stand alone amidst such a hostile geographic area successfully speaks to, I think, partly the U.S. aid. Yep. Um, by the way, you know the United States is number three in per capita defense spending. Israel is number two, so Israel's mm-hmm. very well funded. Yeah, uh, number one is actually Qatar, and we'll talk about Qatar. Interesting in its own way and the role they play. But so the United States absolutely uh, helps to support Israel. But to your point, if Israel's currently engaged in this conflict with Hamas, then it becomes a question of well, who funds Hamas? And in a way. Also, the United States. Yes. Yeah, that's that's one of the stunning things we're going to talk about today. And to sort of keep everything in context and in mind, Hamas launched this surprise attack, um, really targeting uh, innocent children, uh, women and men. They even went after a uh, peace concert uh, that was being held. Um, but it's not just about Hamas. It's not just about the Palestinian Authority. It's also about Iran. Iran is lurking in the background here because, of course, they're the ones that have been backing Hamas for decades, their chief financial sponsor. And there's been a lot of reporting by both the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal that Hamas was trained uh, in this operation by Iranians, that the Iranians were aware of it. So when we talk about this conflict today, we're going to talk about Hamas and Iran, and we're going to talk about really two things, two reasons why we're going to contend today that we're not completely behind Israel. Uh, Number one is ideological. And we're going to talk about people in the government today and people that are trying to influence the government uh, that ideologically are opposed to the state of Israel uh, and supportive of the cause of Hamas. Which is kind of, you know, interesting to think about, but it's yeah. absolutely true. And we have several high level examples of people who I think work at high levels of the United States foreign policy, who help shape foreign policy, who are essentially sort of these wildly radical people that the United States citizens knew how radical some of the views of the people in charge of our foreign policy would be. I think they'd be quite surprised. These are people that literally have come from Soros-funded, very liberal think tanks, and they have found a foothold in the Obama administration, now the Biden administration. So that's what we mean when we say ideological. Yeah, and I and I kind of chuckled there because some of them are absurd. We're going to talk about uh, somebody who worked for a Hamas ally uh, and now works at the Department of Defense in the Pentagon. 
uh, in the department dealing with chemical and biological weapons. I mean, it's it's absolutely absurd. So you have the ideological component. They're they're hostile to Israel. They're hostile to the state of Israel. They're supportive of the Hamas's radical, violent uh, cause. But there's also a financial component of this. Uh, people talk about the Israel lobby in Washington, D.C., and those that are lobbying on behalf of the state of Israel. Uh, there's also an Iran lobby um, that comes into play. And it is not necessarily people that are ideologically aligned with Iran, but what do they see when they see Iran? They see money. They see lots of money because, of course, Iran is one of the biggest oil producers in the world. So we're going to talk about some big oil companies and others that are funding efforts and causes trying to persuade the government to take a soft line on this terrorism sponsoring state. Yeah, this tension between ideological positions and financial prospects is very much like the context you have to view this conflict in. I mean, I was sort of smirking when the Biden administration is part of their solution is that well, we need to make Israel more aligned with Saudi Arabia. Like that's clearly the, t- the move here. And I thought, uh, is it like, are we going to get Saudi Arabia? Like, you know who we love Israel. And I think ideologically, no, but maybe financially, if there's money there, that, that would be the piece. So they do try to use that as a carrot I think that the financial levers, that's the only way it's going to work, right? They do. And look, I mean, the, the, the point is, is it, under the Trump administration, there was progress made, right? I mean, Israel, uh, uh, you know, signed accords with some of the neighboring Arab countries. It was kind of a breakthrough that hadn't been done before. But that was made possible because these Gulf states that agreed to sign with Israel are petrified of Iran. Iran is the biggest threat, not Israel. Israel is not the biggest threat to these small Gulf states. It's Iran. And under the Trump administration, you had an aggressive anti-Iran policy. Biden less so. They're lessening sanctions. You've got these people pushing for a softer line. So suddenly a lot of these Gulf states are getting pretty skittish about moving closer to some kind of rapprochement with uh, with Israel. And that's where the ideological piece comes into, right? Because the Trump administration, people recognize Iran for the threat that it was. And I think more in line. But you've got these U.S. officials who are, I think, oh, Iran, maybe this is like the academic and sort of ideologically sensitive move. To make, And by the way, I, I was sort of surprised at how well known it is that Iran is essentially the force behind Hamas. And it's not just like Trump officials or Republicans saying it. Listen to this quote. And let's play. Let's guess, like, what's the party affiliation <laughs> of this quote? And this is a quote right. from immediately after the surprise attacks that Hamas launched in right. Israel. Right. Quote, the world just changed. And it changed because Iran has built a barbaric terrorist organization inside Gaza that just raped and murdered hundreds of Israelis. That's got to be Jared Kushner, right? You would think it's going to be, or like, uh, you know, an Arkansas Republican, or, you know, I mean, somebody... <laughs> Tom Cotton. Yeah, something like that. No, it's a Democrat from Connecticut. It's Chris Murphy, mm-hmm. uh, the leading Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And, so, and the point is, like, so everyone sort of gets where yeah. Hamas is getting their funding from. And so if, if Hamas is getting... By the way, Hamas doesn't just get funding from Iran. They also get funding from Qatar. Qatar. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, according to U.S. officials, the bulk of Hamas's budget, which is $300 million, come from Iran, Qatar, and then also donations from Palestinians, which, you know, hold on for that in a second. So, yeah. So, they're getting money from Iran. And then so it becomes a question of, well, uh, you know, how does Iran get their money? Yeah. 
Iran gets their money uh, primarily by selling oil. Uh, there have been sanctions on Iran for a long time. Those have been lessened uh, by the Biden administration. Some of which, by the way, very recently. Yeah, very recently. And a lot of this has been driven by an advisor that very few people know about this advising Joe Biden on policy. He's this is this, a real thing. This, this is yeah. like... <laughs> Of course, it's a real no, thing. I you know. think we pulled these things out but of? But I'm our- just saying, like, so think about this. So we just, <laughs> we just, uh, like, uh, along with the United States and Qatar, as part of this, like, this prisoner swap from a few right. years ago, we said, right. okay, listen, what we're here's what we're gonna do. You guys are gonna give us five prisoners. You be, guys being Iran, they're gonna give the United States five prisoners, and in exchange, we're gonna give you six billion dollars. Yeah. But now we say it's only for humanitarian aid. Right. Iran says. Bro, we got it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can do anything that's, we want to with this. That's like telling your kids, <laughs> I only want you to use this to buy dinner, no alcohol. And the kids go say, yeah, sure. We're only going to buy dinner. With but it. this is a thing that Biden administration officials thought those of them up this good idea. Right. We'll give them access to the $6 billion. It's their money. But yeah. because we know they're bad, we've been trying to sanction it. So they just unfroze it a little while ago. They said, here's this money. And then here comes the Hamas attacks. And so now the United States and Qatar says, OK, actually, no, bad idea. We're going to freeze it because that's how directly linked everyone recognizes Iran is to Hamas. Exactly right. And look, money's fungible. They can move the money around. And what's interesting, lurking in the background to all of this is an advisor. He's the special envoy uh, to Iran uh, for the Biden administration, a guy named Robert Malley. Well, he was anyway. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's on leave right now uh, and his security uh, clearance has been suspended because he has mishandled classified information. But this is not a case of a guy accidentally necessarily bringing something home in their suitcase. This is a guy that actually has history that gives a lot of pause and a lot of concern about where his allegiances are. And this is somebody that you would put in the category of ideologically inclined to be supportive of Iran. Uh, Robert Malley uh, is his name, and he kind of has a history. He has history going back to 2008 with Barack Obama. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing. And so, you know, I think a an underreported headline of the Biden administration is that many people in the Biden administration are Obama administration people, right? Yeah. And so, so I think for whatever reason, I think people are maybe a little bit more overt about questioning some of the alliances and the ideological bent of the Obama administration. Now you got an old white guy and they're like, no, 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 he's going to be fine. But many of the same people, I think, are still staffing the Biden administration. It's been reported that Barack Obama still lives in Washington, D.C. People from the White House come to his house. There's a mm-hmm. lack of curiosity in the media. So these, this is the context this is occurring. But you're correct. In 2023, the special envoy to Iran, Robert Malley, gets put on leave and his security class, his security clearance is pulled. But this happened before in 2008 when he was working for Barack Obama's campaign. It was discovered that as a campaign official, he was talking to people in the Islamic resistance move, movement of Hamas, only then to take a role as the senior director of the National Security Council and one of the main architects of the United, Sor- United States foreign policy in the Middle East. So, yeah, so, so let's let's not gloss over this. 2008, he's working for Barack Obama, who's running for president. He's advising him, and he is actually talking with officials. Has to leave the campaign, it's so bad. Yeah, because he's talking with officials from Hamas which is a terrorist organization. Those would be the same people that just launched the nasty attacks in Israel. Exactly. And and those are this guy's buddies. Exactly. And what's interesting and this is this is kind this of is a, a US official. He's the special envoy to Iran. So just to, to yeah. put it another way, the special envoy to Iran in the United States in the Biden administration is friends with Hamas. Yes, that's right. And this is a history involving his family. Um his father <coughs> 
the father uh, of Robert Malley is a guy named Sa- Simon Malley, who is an Egyptian born uh, uh, official and a staunch Arab nationalist who worked with the Nasser regime. The Nasser regime, of course, was very anti-Israel, even as it led Arab states in expelling native Jewish populations and declared a permanent war on the state of Israel. Um, and Simon uh, Malley, he was opposed to the uh, the peace accords where, remember, where Begin and Sadat uh, got together and signed those famous peace accords in 1977. Simon Malley was opposed to that because he said the Arabs are selling out the cause. Uh, this is uh, the background that, that Malley has. We're going to be watching this story, but it demonstrates that you can have an official that comes in like Joe Biden, who says certain things. We're strongly behind Israel. But who is he actually appointing to positions to carry out that policy? Is he appointing officials that actually share that view? Or is he appointing officials that don't share that view? And is that more of a reflection of what his true attitude is? And do you think it's possible that he's attempting to try to appease both camps? Yes, absolutely. Right? I mean, like clearly, you're going to have pro-Israeli people that are your special envoys and your ambassadors to Israel. But then if you also have pro-Hamas officials that are your point people with Iran, then what are you actually doing? Where is the singularity or where is the synergy in terms of our foreign policy? And I think this is, a, you know... A, so the, the Biden administration isn't just appeasing Iran externally. It seems like they're appeasing Iran internal in terms of some of the staffing choices they make in their own administration. Absolutely. No question about it. And this is the problem that, you know, all political parties have. But the Democrats, they have a coalition. They have, um, you know, loyal uh, Jewish voters who are strong, staunchly pro-Israel. At the same time. Which is one reason why you heard Chris Murphy's quote. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you at the same time also have. Uh, a lot of uh, Arab Americans who are, let's say, less sympathetic, perhaps, to the Israeli cause that that are, you know, maybe even, um, you know, pro Hamas, even that extreme. And they're trying to balance both of them. And you've seen this over and over, really, since the Clinton administration. I think Clinton was really the last Democrat uh, who is generally pro Israel, um, certainly with Barack Obama and, and Joe Biden, uh, even less so. But Robert Malley's not the only senior Biden official that has sort of some interesting, curious ties. Um, there's also um, someone who has some ties with Qatar, who's now in the Pentagon. It's You know, people who use the phrase deep state or administrative <laughs> state. Yeah. And I forget who it was that told us the, the, t- the story about they had a high level. I think it was like a cabinet secretary or somebody and they came to meet with the administration's, you know, kind of staff and mm-hmm. they didn't they weren't meeting with the high level person that they wanted. They said, well, we, we want to meet with the A team and not the B team. And the administrative state people said, yeah, we're the B team. We're the team that be here when you leave. Yes. Like, we're, like we're the ones in charge. That's the Jason Chaffetz story. Jason yes. Chaffetz story. And so the point is, is that, you know, so when you say the administrative state, deep state, it's not a conspiracy. These are real people. And yeah. this is just, a, you know, Robert Malley's an example of they make they make they the wheels the policy. They so, make the wheels grind. So the person is the second, the assistant, the special assistant to this assistant secretary of defense for nuclear, chemical and biological defense programs in the United States defense previously worked for the Islamic terrorist state of Qatar. Mm-hmm. Right. So like so. So where are we hiring people in the Department of Defense to staff our biological and chemical warfare stuff? We're hiring them, at least in part. From people who have previously worked for administrations who are also, you know, hostile to Israel and or kind of funders of Hamas. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this person could write 
terrific memoirs from Qatar to the Pentagon, right? It could be, it could be but, running but do you think it's because they're, they're on a, they're afraid to be like, no, we have a certain ideological threshold that we must have. If you want to work in the United States government, yeah. you, there are certain things that are, are like non-negotiables. And if you work for a foreign government, I, you know, I don't care who the foreign government is, even if it's the Canadian government, nothing against Canadian, but you should always have your defenses up as to what, where do their loyalties lie? Do we have security concerns here? Especially if you're talking about Qatar or Qatar, uh, that's somebody that you do not want to have a high ranking position in the Pentagon, particularly on a sensitive issue involving chemical and biological weapons. United States military positions shouldn't be treated like professional sports positions where you can just go from team to team, depending <laughs> upon the free agency season. Right. No, it's like we care about this. Like, there's a- like college football. There's no transfer portal um, when it comes to uh, government policy, or at least there shouldn't be. But those are examples of people that I think it's right to question ideologically. Are they yeah. in line with where the United States should be? Yeah. But then I think your point, and that this is maybe more insidious, is there are people who ideologically sh- might be aligned with the United States and with Israel, but financially find themselves advocating the things that might not serve Israel or the United States' purposes. Yeah, that that's right. Because look, when you're dealing with Iran, you're dealing obviously with a terrorist state. You're dealing with a terrorist state that is sitting on top of massive quantities of oils. It's one of the top two or three oil producers. It certainly has the capacity to do that. So there's a lot of money to be made, and there's a lot of entities that want access uh, to that oil. We've talked before about how in China, uh, the Chinese government doesn't actually have to hire many lobbyists. What they rely on are big Wall Street banks or big tech who want deals in China yeah. to lobby the U.S. government on their behalf. The same thing happens when it comes to Iran. So, um, you know, if you if you look at um, a group like the American Iranian Council, this is a nonprofit that was set up uh, to push for closer relationships between the United States and the Iranian government. Um who actually runs it and who actually funds it? Well, the president um, was an Iranian regime insider. The co-chairman of the lobbying group was a former vice chairman of Chevron Texaco. <laughs> right. And who funded this organization? Aramco, Chevron Texaco, ConocoPhillips. What do all those big oil companies have in common? They want to do deals with Iran. Oh, I thought it was that they're ideologically sympathetic to the plight of the Iranian people and the oppressive <laughs> Jewish state, which is committing all kinds of humanitarian abuses in the region. Yeah, is that not it. Yeah, no, no. no this is all it. this is all about the green or about the the uh, the black oil. Or you look at a guy like Ambassador Thomas Pickering. Um, this is a guy who had served. It's a great, uh, this is a great example. Yeah, I mean, he had served in in a Republican administrations. He was an ambassador. He became uh, Hillary Clinton's shadow diplomat when she was Secretary of State. Um, and while he was an advisor to her as secretary of state, he also had a side gig, a very lucrative side gig. He was on the board of directors of TMK, a Russian oil company. Um, and what's interesting is that he was advising her. It's been shown in emails. He was advising her to reduce or end sanctions on Iran. The oil company that was paying him millions of dollars was selling oil and gas pipelines to the Iranian government that was under sanctions. I mean, that's that's a massive conflict of interest. To put another way, the advisor to Hillary Clinton when she was secretary of state for Iran policy was make was working for a company that made lots of money in Iran. Yeah. And he was advocating for a softer line. 
She also appointed him to an accountability board that that's quite curious. Yeah, the fact that he would, A, I didn't know that there was an accountability <laughs> board for Benghazi. Like I knew we had lots of <laughs> right. hearings in Congress right. and we did that. But that, that this guy right. was the chairman, the guy who's wildly conflicted right. uh, over and works for somebody who makes a lot of money in regions that are hostile to the United States and right. would have been in favor of the Benghazi attacks. Right. And then he's the chairman of the Benghazi Accountability Board <laughs> is both comical and horrifying. Right, right. But I would also wonder, like, I don't know why we need a Benghazi Accountability Board. Wasn't it just like the movie was bad, right? Nobody liked the movie. <laughs> and then that's why they did it. And there was the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's an example of this kind of corruption that we're talking about. And Pickering is not alone. There are other people that serve in these sort of, you know, advisory positions. Um, uh, you know, the Podestas are another example of this. John Podesta, where they're advisors, they don't take official positions, but they're advisors and they have all these kinds of lucrative side gigs. And then you have academics. I mean, this is another example. Well, we of, saw protests right at, yep. at these college campuses all over the country and but protests in favor of Hamas and against Israel. And I think a lot of these students are prodded on or coached on by very liberal academics. But some of these academics are ideological, like the Robert Malice, but some of them have financial ties as well. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there's a professor, John Esposito at Georgetown, takes a very soft line. Um, he's espoused um, a softer line. He works with groups like the Islamic Society of North America. Uh, and he jokes with his students, quote, I owe my Lexus and my career to the Ayatollah Khomeini. And the point that he's making is... <clears throat> His position, his posture towards Iran creates lots of opportunities and lots of relevance uh, for his um, career and has helped, you know, provide financing and support for what he does. So it's an example of sort of this this underbelly uh, to what happens with policy positions that people are espousing towards Iran in government and outside of government. So you got the financial incentives and financial motivations. You've got ideological motivations. And sometimes I think you see a blending of the two. So when you have a Biden administration that's staffed by people who come from very radical positions, and again, this, uh, Robert Malley. So he was with the Clinton administration and then the Bush administration takes over. And he's obviously not in line with where the Bush administration was on Middle East policy. So he goes somewhere else, right? And he goes to work for a think tank that happens to be funded by George Soros. And, th and that's where these think tanks have a very real role because they sort of holding pins and in ideological incubators for people that, and they'll pay people with hostile positions towards the United States until a new regime comes in and then go work for the United States government. And when those people take over in the government, as they've done, then they get to do things like what the Biden administration did earlier in their administration, which is unfreeze yeah. aid for Palestine and for Palestinians. The Trump administration said, no, we're not going to do this anymore. But we now have reporting that the Biden administration has spent more than $1 billion from U.S. taxpayers to aid Palestinians. Uh, so why does that matter? Well, let's go back to where we started. Where does money for Hamas come from? It comes from Iran. And you've talked about there's financial tales there. It comes from Qatar. Yeah. And it comes from money they raise from Palestinians. Right. In terms of charitable donations, because Palestinians say, hey, we really like right. what Hamas is doing. We don't like having to live next to Israel. Right. Exactly right. So, you know, money's fungible. It moves around this notion that we're going to send money to the Palestinian Authority and they're just going to keep it in a lockbox, to use an old Al Gore phrase, and it's not going to go for anything bad is just patently ridiculous. And here's the other thing I would say is, you know, they, they the Biden administration put this in the context of we're providing aid for the Palestinians. 
the way it works in a lot of these countries, and I would say in the West Bank as an example of this, the Palestinian Authority, the money doesn't really go to the Palestinians. It goes to corrupt Palestinian leaders. Yasser Arafat was famous for this. I mean, he died. This is a guy that's the re- leader of a liberation movement who's fighting for his people. It's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, by yeah, the way. No, you're right. Nobel Peace Prize winner. Yasser Arafat died widely uh, estimated that his personal wealth was some five billion. That's with a B dollars. Think about Palestine. Five billion. Yeah, his he he didn't start a business. The business he started was the 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 the, the PLO uh, and then the Palestinian Authority. And his family, his daughter and and his uh, wife, were famous for blowing huge amounts of money in Paris, buying a palace real estate. And I read an article today about the current leader of Hamas, who is gallantly pushing the fighters for Hamas to take it to Israel. Where does he live? He lives in Qatar in a luxury high rise. He's known to have invested in real estate all over Europe. He has Swiss bank accounts. So when Western countries, the Biden administration provides, quote unquote, aid for the Palestinian people. It's not by and large going to the Palestinian people. It's going to the corrupt leaders who are siphoning it off. So we need to stop fooling ourselves. And that's the other sort of components uh, of this money. It's like a shakedown operation. These organizations uh, press the West, say, oh, look at our people. They're starving. They're suffering. Giving, give us money. Uh, they don't give the money to their people. They siphon it off for themselves and their luxury, luxury lifestyles. They press the West. They fund the places that help shape the minds of people that then come to the Biden administration, which then make decisions to release money to go back to these entities that then do things like launch the, or fund groups like Hamas, which is then launch the attacks. And so, I mean, we say f- follow the money, and it's true, and we've done a great job, I think, of that here in the United States, but you often have to f- follow the money overseas because it ends up it's your money it's taxpayer dollar a billion dollars in taxpayer aid to palestine uh is going to things like what we have seen in israel uh via hamas yeah that's right and when whenever we give we've talked about this before large cash grants uh to foreign governments whether it's in ukraine uh whether it's in palestine whether it's to an allied country Money's fungible. It gets moved around. So I think if you're talking about a country that people are suffering, they're hungry, let's sell, send them food. Let's send them tangible things that they can use. But let's stop sending large quantities of cash because we know where that's where that's going to end up. Well, I know, by the way, and this would be the closing note for me, when the money does stop as the six billion dollars in the money that's supposed to go to humanitarian aid in uh, in Iran it was frozen. And the U.S. and Qatar officials came together and said, "Okay, we're going to freeze it." In the Washington Post article that detailed this, it also said they didn't rule out unfreezing it moving forward. <laughs> right, 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 <laughs> so, exactly. Like, For we, good behavior, bro, right? we got a microwave around it's, the corner. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 so ridiculous. I mean, because but why would it not be ruled out? Because the same people that helped come up with the idea in the first place they're going to stay there they're right. going to continue to be in and power they're, and they're making excuses yeah. for the things that iran has done and their involvement in this so it's a horrible tragedy what's going on with israel we're praying for people there uh, on either side of the conflict innocent people um, are going to suffer it's a, it's a terrible tragedy uh, but we appreciate uh, people who are taking courageous action there we see it all the time uh, and it's important for us to have accountability for those people in the united states who for either ideological reasons or financial reasons are really not serving the interests of the United States. They're saving, serving the interests of an agenda that is anti-Israel and is also 
anti-United States. Your yep. final thoughts. Yeah, then we're uh, not the agenda may be anti-United States, but the bankroll is the, the bankroll <laughs> is pro United States because it's being funded by the United States citizens. That's why the story matters. Yeah. And I think they probably want U.S. dollars. They probably don't want uh, uh, Qatari currency would be my guess. But we appreciate you joining us as always. Uh, you can find articles and research that we do at thedrilldown.com. And you can find this podcast wherever great podcasts are located. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time.